Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. If you've been with us in our study so far, you know that we've covered some really stunning territory in this book. Uh, by really reacquainting us with the incredible benefits that come with being united to Christ. That's how we could summarize that opening. It's he's, he's acquainting or reacquainting us, uh, reacquainting us to the, the incredible benefits that come with being united to Christ. And Paul knows that if we grasp what God's done for us in Jesus, in all the, if we get that, if we grasp that, if we know how secure we are in Christ, what He's called us to, if we, if we take hold of these things by faith, Paul knows our lives will inevitably change. So he opens this letter with a high-altitude overview of, of what we've been given. Uh, it's a panorama of all that God has done for us. So it's every spiritual blessing is ours in the Lord Jesus via His death and resurrection for us. Now, Paul has a lot to say in so, in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he's going to continue to unpack some of these things about our identity, or what we need to know. And in the back half of the letter, he's going to talk about how we should live. But before he moves on to talk about these things, Paul does something incredibly important that we don't want to gloss over. In fact, it's not just important, it's indispensable. Paul doesn't just tell us about these blessings, as vital as that is. I mean, how can we these blessings if we don't know what they are, right? Tell us. But he, he pauses here in the verses we're going to consider today to remind these dear believers that he's literally praying these truths into them by the power of the Spirit. Paul knows that he only tell the Ephesians about these truths but they also need the Spirit to turn the lights on in their hearts. They need the Spirit to open their eyes so that they might understand and be changed. And the same is true for us this morning. And every time we come to the Word, we need the Spirit to be at work in our lives, opening the eyes of our hearts to, to perceive spiritual truth and then to live by it. So this morning, we're going to look at prayer of Paul's. In particular, we're going to look at two uh, facets of, of this prayer. So we're looking at two facets. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't even go to the next slide. So we're looking at, we're calling this, we're calling this transforming prayer. We'll look at it this week and transforming prayer. And we're really looking at, at two facets of this, of this prayer. So this is just because Paul's doing two things in this prayer. If you wanted to simplify this passage. Number one, he's thanking God for the faith of these believers. So he's thanking God for, for their faith. And he's interceding for an increase of their faith. So he's thanking God for their faith and he's interceding for an increase of their faith. Or to put it differently, he's thanking God for revealing the knowledge of Christ to them. And he's asking that God would reveal more of Christ to them. 
So we're calling this two facets of encouraging prayer for these Ephesians. And what we're going to see is that this prayer actually functions as a model for the Ephesians and for us today. And it'll rework our life if we let it. So we'll look at this prayer together. So first, the first facet of this prayer, I'm just calling it overflowing thanksgiving. Overflowing thanksgiving. And if you want a longer heading, uh, overflowing thanksgiving, God's initial work in them. It's a mouthful. That's why I only gave you two words in the heading. Paul's overflowing with thanksgiving for God's initial work, his initial work in illuminating them in conversion. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So there's the first facet of this overflowing thanksgiving. We'll go ahead and read the whole passage to get our feel for it. So he doesn't cease to give thanks, remembering you in my prayers. Verse 17 Here's the request that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Whole, that whole section is, is Paul's prayer. It's one sentence in Greek. Just the first section of praise. It was all like 202 words in Greek. The first section is just under that. But it's still another, a second long sentence. So in Paul's mind, all this goes together. It's one huge prayer. And it's really broken up into, into two facets. At least this morning, we're going to look at two facets. First is the overflowing thanksgiving that Paul starts with. Paul knew that all the blessings he just described, verses 3 to 14, belonged to these Ephesians. Okay? He knew that they were chosen and predestined for sonship. He knew that they had experienced redemption, forgiveness of all their sins. He knew they had been sealed with God's Spirit. But how? How did he know that? Because, he says, they had believed the good news. And this faith led to the action of love. Notice here in verse, verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I don't cease giving thanks. Their belief in the gospel was the evidence that God had already chosen them. Right? Their belief in the gospel was the evidence that God had already chosen them. They're just working out God's sovereign purposes here when they exercised freely of their own volition faith. So it's the, it's the manifestation 
they've been chosen by God and they have all of these blessings and benefits. And if you want to write down 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul talks about the exact same thing there. That their reception of the gospel and of the apostles indicated in them. And that was to the Thessalonians. But it's not just true for the Ephesians and the Thessalonians. The same is true for you and I today. Have you rested in the promises of God when you heard the gospel? Have you done that? Did you exercise faith in the Lord? Have you yielded to the good news of Jesus Christ? Have you given up your striving and rested in in His finished work? Have you recognized the voice of the shepherd? Do you have ears to hear it? And have you followed Him? Well, if you have, that's faith. And it's a gift from God. It's an evidence that all of these blessings belong to you and that should encourage us. But you might say, as, as we often do, well, I think I, think I believe, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I think I believe in Jesus, but how can I know for sure? How do I know that I really, really believe? Well, notice what else Paul says here about these believers. He says their faith was manifesting itself tangibly in love for other believers. Notice this. He says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. What's he talking about here? The saints are, is another word for believers. Christians, people who've been made holy by virtue of their union with Christ. And it's, it's across the board. So what he's saying is, these people have faith in the Lord and it's manifesting itself in real, tangible love for other people, for other believers. So, think about the connection. When we believe the gospel, we're saying that we believe that Christ has laid down his life for us, for his enemies. That's what, that's what we believe. That's what the Bible teaches. We were his enemies. We weren't good. We weren't just needing a little bit of dusting off. We were rebels, and he laid his life down for us. We're saying that we believe that we've received full and free forgiveness. We were terrorists and we've been pardoned by the king. We're saying that we're the recipients of God's undeserved, unconditioned love. But God doesn't just love you like that. He loves everyone that he's chosen and saved like that. So if you really believe this stuff, there's real faith happening in your life, you're going to inevitably begin to love other believers, even if they're unlike you, even if they come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, even if they're... Get on your nerves, okay? You're going to learn to love them because they belong to the Father. And the Father has laid His life down for them just like He's laid His life down for you. The Father has forgiven you far greater than you could ever imagine that you'll have to forgive anybody else. And so that provides the basis for genuine love for other people. You'll want to be around other Christians because they speak your language. They share your heart. You'll want to sacrifice for them. Or even if you don't, you will because you know that you need to. They belong to the Lord. You will serve them. That's love. Now, he's not saying that the Ephesians were perfect in love. In fact, in the back half of this letter, he's going to talk about increasing in this love for each other. So there's still, there's still a work in progress, just like we are. But my point here is that if you want to know that your faith is real, ask yourself, is it making a difference in your life? 
Is it causing you to love other believers more? Or are you totally self-absorbed all of the time? If you are, then there might be a reason to to question your faith, not to just spiral out of control in self-doubt, but to repent, right? And to begin trusting Christ for real, and then begin loving people. So if that's a question for you, please come talk to us. We want to see you have full assurance of faith in Christ. And for Paul, this faith that's working itself out in love is his simplification of the Christian life. I love when people make things simple, right? I'm kind of a complex guy, and sometimes I'm not that simple, all right? But I like it when people are, can just crystallize something for me. And Paul here has crystallized a Christian life as faith that's operating, working through love. That's so helpful. And this was the evidence This faith and love was the evidence that these Ephesians really do belong to God. And Paul's thrilled about this. All right, but how did he hear about it? Well, he says he heard of their faith. Well, it's very likely through one of his co-workers. And you say, wait a minute, I thought you said in the introduction to Ephesians, if you can remember back that far, that Paul had already been to Ephesians. He had planted the church there. He was in ministry, involved there. So what's all this about? Well, that was at least five years ago, according like in the Bible time when he's writing this, at least. And we're led to believe that more conversions had happened since then, like a lot more. It's, it's likely that the church was exploding with new Gentile converts, and that's why Paul was writing this letter. So he wanted to help these newer believers understand their place in God's saving purpose, know that they were full participants in this salvation. So when Paul heard this report from his co-worker or whatever, that the gospel was bearing more fruit in Ephesus, I want you to notice his first response. His first response. So here's Paul in prison, getting a word from his co-worker, and his first response is this, this first facet of the prayer. He overflows with gratitude to God. Notice what he says in verse 16. I don't cease to give thanks for you. He overflows with gratitude. It thrills Paul's heart to hear of more conversions and the increase of love in the church. It thrills him. And he knows implicitly that God is to be thanked for this. Why? Because God's the fundamental cause of every conversion. He's the fundamental cause of every act of faith. He knows this means that that God has made people alive in Ephesus. And this deserves praise. So, just right out of the gate, imagine if you were part of the Ephesian church and Paul said this about you. How encouraging would that be? Right? Someone is identifying God's work in your life and telling you that they're thankful to God because of it. You ever experienced that? Somebody identifying God's work in your life and telling you that, hey, I praise God for this in your life. That's, that's called biblical affirmation. Biblical affirmation. It's not, affirmation is not all bad. It's not flattery. I used to think that. Um, but I've since been rounded out a bit. This is healthy biblical affirmation. And Paul was a master at it. Sometimes we're just tempted to think of Paul as a stoic, kind of a grit and bear it guy, you know, who just gutted out life. Anybody ever tempted to think of Paul that way? I have been in the past. Um, but the more 
carefully you read his letters, you see that he was tender, caring, affirming. He pointed out evidences of grace in the lives of other people. So, this is sort of an aside, but are you a grace hunter? Or, I don't know what we call it, maybe a sin sniffer? Um, What are you? (laughs) Are you highly critical of others? Or do you have eyes to see the grace of God in, in the life of another person? Do you praise God for the fruit that you see developing in other people's lives? Do you tell other believers that you're praising God for that fruit? I want to encourage you to tell someone today of the grace of God that you see operating in their life. All right, can we commit to that? Can you just think of a friend or somebody in this church or somebody that's sitting next to you and actually just think of a way that you've seen the grace of God at work in their life. You've seen them act by faith in a particular area and I want you to affirm them. Praise God for, them, for that and affirm that practice in their life. Any small act of faith, any love that you see in another believer, tell them about it. Paul's an incredible model of this for us and I think if we, if we were to have spent any time with him, we would see that was a, that was a habitual characteristic of his life. So, that's just really, introductorily, you know, the first facet of Paul's prayer. There's this, you see his heart has overflowing gratitude to God for the initial conversion, the initial illumination um, of these people in Ephesus. And that really leads us to where we're going to spend most of our time today in, in the second, uh, what do we call it, facet of Paul's prayer. And I'm calling this fervent intercession. Fervent intercession. Again, if you want a longer title, Fervent Intercession for God to Increasingly Illuminate Them. So he gave thanks for God's initial illumination. Now he's, now he's fervently interceding for God to increasingly illuminate them. Now we'll work this out. Just you know, If there's questions that are arising in your mind, we'll, we'll work this out in just a bit. This gratitude gives way to intercession. Look in verse 17. or We'll pick it up in 16. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? So, Paul intercedes for these believers. He's praying consistently for these Ephesian believers, and he wants them to know what he's praying for them. Now, it sounds like Paul's prayer uh, is centered on a lot of things, right? As we kind of read that, he says a lot in this, these verses. But I want to show you that he's actually offering one basic request. One basic request. And I've, I've, I'm going to put this out for you here on the screen a little bit. Not what I normally do, okay? So, here's the request. I'm going to stand up here so I can see this. He's asking that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So that's the idea. He's asking just one, one basic thing. 
He's at God, Paul is asking God to give these believers a spirit, or the spirit, I think is better, of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, if you have an e, how many of you have an ESV? Okay. It's going to capitalize the word spirit here. Why do you think it does that? It's referencing the Holy Spirit. That's the way they're interpreting this. How many of you have an NASB? What does it do? It has a lowercase s. So they're interpreting this word, same Greek word, to mean the human spirit. So we're like a, something sort of internal to you. So, he's, so the two different interpretations would be, the first one, like the ESV is saying, he's asking God to give you the spirit, the Holy Spirit, of wisdom and of revelation. And the second interpretation would be that he's asking God to produce a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in you. Now, which is it? Well, I think it's better to understand this as a request for the Holy Spirit. And now you're immediately asking the question. Now, wait, wait a minute. I thought you said the believers already have the Holy Spirit. Didn't we just cover that in the, the last message? Filled with the Spirit, right? When we believe. So why is Paul asking God to give the Spirit to us again? Well, that is a good question. But the request is not so much that he give us the Spirit again, but that he gives us the working of the Spirit in our lives. The Spirit is, grants wisdom, and the Spirit grants revelation. Continued wisdom and revelation. I think that's the idea. Anytime you see this word revelation, the second word, it's always associated with the Spirit and a, and a gift of God to his people, like with the Holy Spirit. And so that's why I think this, this is a spirit of revelation, meaning the Holy Spirit. We don't have internal spirits of revelation, you know, in and of ourselves. God grants that through the Holy Spirit. So, in other words, what I think Paul's saying here is that God provides progressive insight into the true knowledge of himself, into the true knowledge of Christ. He grants progressive insight, described as wisdom and revelation. So just in case that's not quite clear, Paul provides another phrase to help explain what he just said. He says, which is the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And now here's the explanation of that, which is the enlightenment of the eyes of your hearts. Now, again, the translations go all different ways on this. Uh, and just for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into several different interpretations. It, well, I guess I will. It either, sorry, I realized I was like, okay, here you go, nope. Um, basically, this could refer either, he's referring back to your conversion, so that's not the view I have on here. So he's saying, he's asking that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation because you've been enlightened in your heart. So that would be a reference to your conversion. So because you've been enlightened, now he's asking you for further revelation. That would be consistent with theology and what we believe. I think the second view is a little bit better. So he's further describing what he means by this spirit of wisdom and of revelation, which he means further enlightenment of the eyes of your heart. That's what we need in the Christian life, further enlightenment. He's asking God to turn the lights on in your heart to help you perceive the truth and its implications by faith. If you want just a, a, a good way to say that, that's, that's what it would be. He's asking God to help you perceive the truth and its implications by faith. 
And the Spirit is vitally, that's His vital work in our hearts. As a believer who already has the Holy Spirit, this is something you need the Spirit to do for you progressively, daily, as you come into contact with the truth. That's the point of this prayer. Now, if this is a little confusing, uh, maybe an illustration will help. We've all experienced power outages, right? Some of us more than others. I think I'd experienced like a couple in my life, and then I moved to our current house, and it seems like our power's out every other week. Um, we got trees everywhere, and they're all the time falling on the lines. Well, when the, when the power goes out of your house or your dorm, I mean, it's out. There's no, it doesn't matter how many times you click the switch, it's like it's not coming on because the power's cut off. It's not coming back on until the AEP or whoever it is gets, gets uh, out there and, and fixes the problem. Well, spiritually speaking, before we came to Christ, the power's out. Like, there's nothing flowing into our house. We don't have any capability. I mean, Sometimes we flick the switch, nothing's happening. We don't have the capacity to understand the truth and, and understand and, and submit to its implications. So, but when we come to Christ in conversion, God turns the power on in our lives. It's like he goes out and fixes the transformer or whatever it is that's down. Now there's power flowing back into our lives in terms of the Spirit's illuminating power. Now the Spirit's work is to go through our house and... Flick the lights on, all right? Because we have access to the power now. The power is here, we've been illumined, and now it's the Spirit's work to progressively go through the house, room by room, turning on the lights for us so that we can see. It's a, it's a progressive work of illumination. But get this, we, we, we can turn the lights on now because the power is back on. And that's what's fueling this prayer, right? So Paul's saying... Essentially, because I've heard of your faith, i.e., because the power's on, now I'm praying for further illumination for you. Right? So this should, this should fuel our hope that this is precisely why the Spirit was given to us to help us understand and submit to the truth, to set us free. This is why Paul is motivated to pray. Because it's very possible for them, and that's what the Spirit delights to do, the Spirit will give us progressively more and more illumination in the true knowledge of Christ. And this illumination we see comes through humbly asking God for it. Right? You can jot down Proverbs 2 for an Old Testament reference on this. God loves to give wisdom to those who ask for it. And we're seeing a new covenant example of this in Ephesians 1. And as the the Spirit gives us more knowledge of God, Paul knows that this will cause growth in at least three areas. Okay? It will cause growth in at least three areas. Or we could say it will result in, in growth in three areas. Paul lists these out. First he says, well... Well, I'll just show you that. It results in growth. He says that he's asking that God may give you a spirit of wisdom of revelation so that you might know some things. So you see the connection between he's given us the spirit to, to illumine us in the knowledge of, of Christ so that we might know some things, right? 
So it's really just one request, and he's going to flesh it out in, in a couple of areas here. So that you might know, number one, what is the hope of his calling? That's what he says here. What is the hope of his calling? Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And number three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you who believe? So he's, the request is that we would be further illumined so that we would know some things in, in three particular areas. So let's unpack these. Let's unpack these as we go. Make sure there's no... Yeah, so these are the, the requests and the results. First, he says... Um, flip back to this screen here. We will gain more knowledge of the unshakable hope that comes from being called by God. We will gain more knowledge of the unshakable hope that comes from being called by God. That's what he means by the hope of our calling, the hope of his calling, the calling that comes from him. This calling isn't like you'd friend on your iPhone. Okay? This calling is used synonymous with words like election, predestination. So this is an effectual call. This is something that when God calls Lazarus out of the this illustration, but he calls Lazarus out of the grave and Lazarus obeys. Okay, it's, it's something that, that God has, has graciously he's spoken and given you the ears to hear it. So he's called you, and that calling produces an unshakable hope for us. Paul wants us to realize that our salvation yields this hope. He's not saying that life's not hard, that we don't experience gut-wrenching trials. We do. Paul's a realist about those things, and he knows God's purpose in them. He probably suffered more than you and I ever will. What he is saying is that our calling to salvation provides hope that can't be depleted. Paul's in jail writing this, suffering some pretty poor conditions, likely. Paul knows that our greatest of all problems has been solved in Christ. So... Our greatest of all problems have been solved. That provides the foundation for hope and joy. We can rejoice in all things. As Christians, we should be optimistic about the future. A new world with a perfect king is coming, and we're a part of it. We're already the citizens of that kingdom. So it, it provides an unshakable hope. And as the Spirit illumines our hearts, we're going to be less depressed. Okay? Okay? That's the opposite of hope, depression. Hope is the opposite of, of despair. We're going we're gonna to really believe deep in our hearts that the best is yet to come. That's going to be a result of the Spirit illuminating that truth in your heart. We're going to realize that even our sufferings are producing an eternal weight of glory for us in, in the coming kingdom. So our hope will, will lead to joy it will lead to a happiness that transcends our circumstances and it's rooted in the God who saved us. So Paul is, is pleading with God to turn that on in your heart. He's asking God to the, to the Ephesians and now by proxy to us, praying that God would, would open our hearts to understand these things, to understand in particular the hope of our calling. Because we do, our life's going to change. And second, he says that 
that the Spirit will work in a way that the second result is that we're going to grow in the knowledge of the wealth of our inheritance. The wealth of the inheritance that God has provided for us. Now, we we discussed this at length last week, so I'm not going to get back into this again. But some translations like the ESV interpret this to mean that we will know that we are God's inheritance. Right? Remember us talking about that a week ago? We're God's inheritance. That's definitely true. It's a biblical theme. But I think what this text is saying is that Paul wants us to understand the wealth of the inheritance that is from God. It's of him in the sense that it's from him, from God to us. He wants us to realize the magnitude of the new and glorious creation that will be given to us in Christ. He wants us to understand our new and glorious bodies that will live forever in that new creation. That's our inheritance. It's glorious. Um, It is wealthy, and it's coming for us in the new world. And as the Spirit illumines our hearts to the significance of this inheritance, we're going to find ourselves less tethered to this sin-cursed world. Right? So this is a great complement to the uh, Ecclesiastes study in in just a minute. We're going to see. We'll find ourselves less tethered to this sin-cursed world. We'll find ourselves longing for a better country, a better land, one that's filled with righteousness and goodness, and it's led by a perfect king. We're not talking about this erythral, or however you say that word, existence, where we have wings and halos. We're talking about a new creation. Similar to this one, but glorious. Set free from the curse. With bodies similar to these. I mean, think about Christ and His resurrection body. He looked like a human being. Right? That's His glorified, resurrected body. So, we're going to inherit the same kind of, of glorious body. So, if the Spirit turns the lights on in our hearts here and begins to turn the lights on in our hearts about our inheritance, we're going to see these things. We're going to grow skeptical of the idols that lie to us. We're going to long to see them destroyed, dismantled, rather than to give in to Satan's schemes. We're going to want to use our resources that we do have in this life that are fleeting and they're going to burn up. We're going to want to use those resources profitably for the coming kingdom that will last. One thing I often say is that, how many of you like Monopoly? Okay, it's a long game. I know it kind of gets drug out and people get pummeled and discouraged at the end of it. I understand that. That's why I like Catan better. Yeah, right. Okay, back on track. Okay, you Catan freaks out there, just hang with me. Monopoly, we get so engrossed in the game and in amassing the, the paper money. I mean, how, how silly is that when we're so tied up in that game, right? And you're like, oh, I'm going to get this. I'm going to go amassing money. No, 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 no. And it's like, what's Monopoly, bro? Like, chill out, you know? That's what we look like on this world, okay? We're amassing paper money that's just going to burn up when Christ comes back. But imagine if you could use your Monopoly money to buy a real house. Now we're talking. Now you'll start to invest your monopoly money, and you're like, what? wait a minute, hang on. That's, that's, out of, that's out of the question. Well, no, we can do that. We can use our resources now to accrue things in the future, in the coming kingdom, by spending them on kingdom purposes. So, that's another... When you understand the wealth of your inheritance that's coming, you're going to want to invest there. You're going to want to live for that. So... We're going to grow the Spirit, and that's the Spirit's work in our lives. He illuminates to us the wealth of our inheritance. 
And that's why Paul's praying. Third, he says that we're going to gain more insight into the unparalleled power that's accessible to us. The Spirit will help us gain more insight into the unparalleled power that's accessible to us. Now, we're going to, this is like a teaser, all right, for next week. We're going to not even talk about this one because it's the rest of the verses in this, in this section. It's Paul, one of Paul's primary points in this prayer. We've got to know the power that's at work within us so that we can access this power in sanctification, so we can risk our lives because we know this power is at work within us. We can be confident that God's going to recreate this world and he's able to do it because he's resurrected Jesus and installed him on the throne. So there's a lot we've got to unpack about this one. I just want to show you now that, or I just want you to notice, I should say, that part of the Spirit's illuminating work is to grow us in an understanding of the power that's at our disposal. It's the power to recreate the universe. It's God's power, and, it, and it's, as the Spirit illumines our hearts, we're going to come to believe deeply that God is using this power for us and for our good. So, this is Paul's opening prayer for the Ephesians. Alright? There's two facets of it. It's quite a transforming prayer. He overflows with thanksgiving because God has granted His Spirit to us. The power is back on in our house, so to speak. And then he prays for more illumination for the Spirit to progressively turn these lights on in our, in our rooms. So, as we bring it to a close today, I have a few reflection questions for you. A few reflection questions for you. And I forgot to put the animation part on my or my slideshow here. So, just giving them to you all at once, all right? As you meditate this week, I want you to be thinking about these things, all right? Number one, do you pray? Do you pray? And that's a basic question. Paul models for us here a, a vital discipline for the Christian life. He prays without ceasing, it says here in this verse. Right? Did you catch that? He says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And this just means he's consistent in prayer. He's consistent in prayer with whatever time he has available for it. Okay? But we have to start here with this question. Do you pray? Many of us intend to pray. Right? But do you actually pray? If you don't, I want you to notice this. This is not some slam. If you don't pray, it's rooted in how you understand prayer. Okay? If you don't pray or struggle to pray, I think prayer in this life will always be at some, in some sense a struggle. Okay? So we should just kind of know that up front. Um, Paul says he commands us to be devoted to prayer. Why does he say that? Why doesn't he just say pray? To be devoted to it. it. means we're going to have to intentionally seek it out and pursue it. Because it's going to cut against our flesh. It's an act of humility to pray. But anyway, if you don't pray, it's rooted in how you understand prayer. So, how do you envision prayer? That's our second question. Is prayer something that you know you should do, but you're not really sure why you should do it? Right? That's particularly common for people who have kind of grown up in the church or a Christian family. Like, well, I know I'm supposed to pray. I feel really guilty because I don't pray. But we don't really ever get beyond that. Like, let's, let's understand what's underneath our lack of prayer. 
Scripture provides us with so many, so much teaching on prayer. I'm not going to summarize it right now. But this passage gives us one huge reason to pray. Prayer is one of God's most powerful means to bring about spiritual growth. Prayer is one of God's most powerful means to bring about spiritual growth. Paul believed this deeply, and so he prayed consistently and specifically. You see that? Paul knows that without the illuminating work of the Spirit, we will not grow. It's not like we might grow. We won't grow. It's an indispensable ingredient. If we realize that God is committed to provide for our spiritual growth through prayer, we will pray. We believe that. And not only is is God committed to do this through prayer, Paul is going to later say in Ephesians 3 that he is far, he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think in prayer. Okay? So, again, that's going to get back to our power discussion that we're going to have in a minute or next week. So, how do you envision prayer? Prayer is one of the most powerful means to bring about spiritual growth in our lives. Number three. What do you pray about most often? What do you pray about most often? Get this, guys. What we pray about reveals what is most central to our hearts. Okay? What we pray about reveals what's most central to our hearts. It reveals some of our greatest desires. And Paul's greatest desire here was for the growth of his converts. For his own growth in knowing Christ. He believed knowing Christ is of surpassing value, like the most important thing. And he was willing to trade absolutely everything to know Christ intimately. He knows better than we know that this is our most fundamental need and our greatest privilege. So he prays for these things. So ask yourself, do you pray prayer similar to this for you? If you don't, you should. You should Let this prayer reshape and transform your most fundamental desires. By the way, the Lord's Prayer will do that for you too. If you just commit to praying through that, it will begin to reshape you. It will help you realize the things that matter most. They're going to last for an eternity and actually get after praying for those things. And finally, last question, do you pray for others? Do you realize that God intends to use you to grow other people simply by praying for them. Simply by praying for them. This is an incredible ministry, and it's severely lacking in the church. Don't turn there. I just want to read to you. You can write down Colossians 4.12. I think Paul likely just, this was a matter of emphasis for him, for his, his co-workers, his boys. You know, that are like running, running for him and doing things. Notice how he describes Epaphras, one of his co-workers. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf, thinking discipling, teaching, nope, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul is saying, bro's interceding for you, and he is, and it's leading to your full maturity and full assurance in the will of God. They don't even know it, you know? I mean, imagine this kind of ministry. Do you pray for others? 
This is an incredible ministry. It's lacking in the church because we, it happens in secret. It involves much death to self, and it requires much love and faith. Okay? And it, and it yields incredible results. Okay? Because it's, we're praying to God, and he loves to bring glory to his name simply by his weak people praying for the people. So let Paul's prayer shape not only the way you pray for yourself, but the way you pray for your fellow church members. Find some people and start praying for them, okay? If you don't already, if that's not part of your life, as a believer, find a few people and start praying specifically for them in secret before the Lord by faith, according to this verse, with Paul as your model. And the Lord will work through those prayers. All right? So this, those are some reflection questions for you to just take home, think through, pray about, um, incorporate into your life. Let me know if you have questions about this text. Um, we'd love to talk with you about it. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this example to pray. We confess, I confess my own weakness in this area. Failure to pray, Lord. But um, I'm encouraged to think about how our church, our leaders here, our pastors, even our boundless leaders, pray these kinds of things uh, for this group. So may we uh, just continue in that. May we just set aside those habitual times of prayer and discipline ourselves for it. Help us to see the value of what we're doing. Make us into a praying people um, for your glory as we model the Apostle Paul here. Thank you for the Spirit and for his illuminating work in our lives. And uh, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.